defeat the digital Nazis and Australia could be a manufacturing powerhouse. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 10th of December 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. Now, on today's show, we're going to be discussing Australia beginning to discuss the implementation of a central bank digital currency. Yep. And the, some of the results coming out of the uh, ongoing manufacturing inquiry. Now, if you like today's show, don't forget to hit the like button subscribe and hit the notifications bell so you're alerted to everything that comes out and share it as widely as possible. Now, before we get into the main topics for the day, we have a couple of announcements, I believe. Uh, so regular viewers and know, Elisa, we've been very much involved with the uh, Senate inquiry into the Sterling First uh, scandal, um, which has left 140 elderly people facing eviction onto the streets, which are, you know, they're financially ruined at the end of their life. There's been two hearings so far. There is a third hearing that is really going to put ASIC on the spot, and it's on the 15th of December, which is on this coming Wednesday. And I tell you, um, tune in if you can. You can watch it online on the, on the internet. Uh, expect fireworks. We're this ASIC is going to have to account for what it's, you know, it's terrible failings in this um, uh, area. Politicians have the appetite to hold ASIC to account. So look forward to that. Just the other thing I wanted to mention is we talk about a lot of inquiries. Um, there is a, there's a currently an inquiry uh, receiving submissions into the comp uh, compensation scheme of last resort. And this is the scheme that the uh, Commissioner Kenneth Hayne of the Banking Royal Commission recommended. And when the government set it up, they made it too narrow and they've excluded too many people, right? And, and they've put a cap on how much can be, uh, can be paid out in compensation. So there's a big fight over that. That's taking uh, submissions until the 17th of December. We can put, we'll put the link to that below. All financial victims should make a submission to that, right? Demand that they actually, this actually become a proper compensation scheme. This will be a big issue for us going forward into the new year. Right, so you've got several days to do that. It's a week yep. away from recording date. Um, so on to the first topic, defeat the digital Nazis. Now, one of the big campaigns and most successful campaigns we've run in the last couple of years is to defeat the ban on large cash transactions over $10,000. Yep. Um, where we took on the quote-unquote digital Nazis who say that all commerce should be electronic because it's more efficient, more convenient, well, until it isn't. <laughs> until that's, that's why we call them digital Nazis, at least. I mean, there's a, there's a vested interest involved, which you can talk about, but, yeah, it, it fails too often. Yeah, you know, when the electricity goes down, when there's a bushfire, when communications, yep. internet is not available, all of a sudden um, that whole convenience and efficiency goes down the toilet. Um, so we had exposed during this campaign against the, the so-called cash ban uh, that part of the agenda was to trap people in banks 
and there's a number of reasons for that, including tracking all of our info, all of our data, but also so that people don't have an alternative to be locked into banks when the financial system crashes, which yeah. depends upon um, bailing in, i.e. stealing depositors' money and certain investments to keep the banks afloat. That's the new so-called paradigm so that the financial system can keep going in perpetuity even though it's actually bankrupt dead and gone long ago. If you, cannot, if you cannot use an alternative to banks, you will not escape bail-in. You will not escape if interest rates go negative. You'll not escape negative interest rates where they'll be taking money out of your account to pay them interest because mm. they're holding your money. You won't be able to escape that. And that these are the, this is the vested interest um, involved in pushing the cash ban. This is the banks. The mm. banks want this. That's a crucial mechanism of ongoing monetary, monetary measures of control. Plus, the, plus, of course, they get a cut out of every transaction. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. Right? It's a big and when they've cut. got all transactions, they'll make that cut bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm. And that's just, you know, they have the way they make their money. Yep. So, you know, one of the things we've maintained, there's nothing wrong with having the digital form for people that want to use it, but you have to... Uh, have an inclusive financial system and there's no substitute for cash under no. certain conditions and for certain categories of the population. So you have to maintain that. But there was an announcement this week uh, from our esteemed treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, uh, who announced that they are going to examine uh, CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. Uh, and we'll just roll a clip where he uh, made that announcement. Well, we're working through with the Reserve Bank the feasibility of having a central bank digital currency in Australia. That would be world leading um, and of course this is a fast moving area. There's a digital revolution going on in our financial sector. Um, checks are nearly gone, cash is in decline, uh, buy now, pay later, digital wallets and digital currencies are fast becoming the new norm. In fact, every single day in Australia there are 55 million non-cash payments worth some 650 billion and more than 800,000 Australians have actually had uh, or owned cryptocurrency. So what we're seeking to do is modernise the payment system to broaden out the types of services and products that are governed by regulation with respect to cryptocurrency. We want to take it out from the shadows, bring it into a considered regulatory framework. We want buyers and sellers uh, that are businesses uh, of those cryptocurrencies to have a uh, financial licence that will give consumers a little bit more certainty and confidence about the parties that they're dealing with and then of course work with the Reserve Bank about the feasibility of a central digital currency. So there you have it. And what, what, the way I described that, Alessa, is the digital Nazis that we were fighting on the cash ban are marching back, right? Now, what Frydenberg is announcing is next year this will be a big part of the agenda. They're, gonna, they're going to do consultations slash inquiries into the central bank digital currency, uh, etc. And we have to be prepared for that. Um, and we'll talk about more of that in a minute. Yeah, one of the good things that came out of this, though, yep. uh, is in a press release that they put out announcing this, they did say, and I think they wouldn't have got away with not saying this, True. that they would also look at debanking. I mean, there's parliamentary inquiries that have been ongoing this year in, into issues of debanking as well. So it's been a hot topic. Um, and the press release stated, as part of these reforms, the government will also investigate the feasibility of a central bank digital currency and seek to address the complex issue of debanking. Yeah, it's only complex because they serve the banks, by the way. Uh, if you weren't... Not really. If you weren't subservient to the banks, it's not complex at all. No. Don't allow them to, to, to debank, debank people. Mm. 
It's quite simple. If the business is illegal, don't debank it. We've actually played a big role in getting the spotlight on this, right? Um, so we, I interviewed Paul Thomas from the uh, Cash and Transit business owner who was debanked by Westpac. Um, the first person to bring it to my attention is a, is a golden billion, uh, bullion dealer here in Melbourne named Michael Kukulka, brought it to my attention two years ago in the context of the cash ban. Um, and we put a lot of attention on it and politicians started paying attention. And in fact, sorry to divert a little bit here, but when we had the cash ban campaign, the first hearing was extraordinary and debanking came up in that hearing. And it was um, uh, Senator Rex Patrick and the late Senator Alex Gallagher did an excellent job in that hearing. And in fact, Alex Gallagher, we made a video, his, his performance was so good. He sat there all day and he asked all these government departments, what's your evidence for the need to ban cash? And they couldn't come up with any, right? And so when they saw that the government didn't, and, and people should learn that lesson going forward, mm. when, the, when the government says they've got, they got a plan for something, right, look into the details. So Alex Gallagher exposed that, and it's really sad he died um, recently and they had a tribute to him in Parliament. I heard part of it, and uh, a lot of outpouring of genuine emotion about him. And I, you know, I didn't know him very much, except the one time we saw him in action, he was exceptionally good. Um, so that was, you know, rest in peace, Alex Gallagher. Uh, the debanking came up, though, right? And that was the first time a lot of those senators heard of it. It was the first time I heard of it. And that has mushroomed or snowballed into Senator Andrew Bragg had a, had a um, series of hearings on it. And now the Treasurer knows it must be addressed as well. That's the one good thing, the one positive in this announcement he made. Right? So, so they're going to look at a whole bunch of things next year. Debanking will be one of them, and the rest is going to be something that we have to be much more combative about. So, but the, C, the central bank digital currency is actually the big issue here, though, because the Reserve Bank of Australia has stated pretty clearly that it won't support both digital currency and cash, because that would be too big of a burden to bear. Supposedly. <laughs> and that's, that there's a real problem. Now, let me just say, um, we want to reform the whole Reserve Bank as well, so it doesn't get to call the shots in these areas. It needs to be made into a national bank, and it will just do what the government damn well tells it to do. Mm. But at the moment, it's this all-powerful central banking institution, and that is what it said. And that's where it gets ridiculous, Elisa, because... I understand, you know, technology evolves, etc., and there may be um, some uh, benefits to a central bank digital currency. But I think the reality is we put the cart before the horse. They're trying to address problems as if we're the Jetsons, mm. when in fact, for many Australians, we're still the Flintstones. And here's the thing: unless, well, until every square millimeter of Australia has 100% reliable electricity and no mobile phone or internet black spots, this is a joke hmm. because it's what you said earlier. It's fine until it isn't. And there's nothing more frustrating if you really need to make that purchase and all your technology fails and you cannot do it. And I, I had a, um, <laughs> a parallel incident in Sydney yesterday when I needed to fill up, fill up their hire car um, before dropping it off at the airport. And I picked a road to go down, assuming there'd be a petrol station there wasn't, right? And I'm getting more and more frustrated. Where are the petrol stations? Because when, when you really need something and you can't do it, yeah. right? And that's what happens when the power failures, fails. We got involved in the Christine Holgate issue, as um, most people know, and we got the parliamentary inquiry up. One of the things Christine Holgate did when she overhauled the Bank at Post Service at Australia Post 
was to make sure it supported cash because she understood cash is very, very important. Mm. In, the, in the bushfires, the big bushfires at the start of uh, 2020, whole sectors of southern New South Wales lost their power. People needed to shop. They needed to get fuel. The only place they could go was the local post office to get cash, <laughs> right? And that's the reality. And while they, they can crap on about all this stuff, digital stuff as much as they like, the real world, people need cash. Don't you dare ban it. Yeah, it's pie in the sky until then. But ABC Radio, I think it was, had a, put a survey up the other day on Facebook and it, it said, with bank branches and ATMs disappearing across Australia and cashless payments becoming the norm, we want to know, when was the last time you used cash? And it was interesting to look at some of the comments. I think there was over 1,500 at the, a few days ago, so who knows how many there are now. Um, but, you know, people affirming we need to have the ability yeah. to use cash overwhelmingly. Because well, you saw um, the Treasurer before, you know, he just rattles off the, st the statistics about, you know, people aren't using much cash anymore. Yeah, because the banks are denying it to them, right? They're ripping out ATMs. They've ripped out a third of Australia's ATMs in the last five years. They want to stop people using cash. And yeah, sure, flashing around the card or your phone's convenient. But um, if the banks weren't hurting people in this direction, even more people would use cash. In fact, mm. as you know, since we've been on the cash ban campaign and you realise the Reserve Bank essentially said, we will supply cash as long as there's demand for it. So it really is use it or lose it. I use cash more than ever, right? And now I'm back in the swing of using cash and, and yeah, I, I fully prefer it and I see why people do. And whenever I'm at a shop and it's a genuine small business and I say, what do you prefer? They tell me they prefer cash. Mm. And not because they're avoiding tax, they're avoiding bank charges. Mm, yeah. Um, now, of course, as you mentioned, the real solution to this is moving into the manifold of national banking with a crucial subset of that being transforming Australia Post into an actual postal people's bank. And we yeah. put out a press release on the 9th of December headlined, let's make a postal bank an election issue. Um, and so we're going to be going hard on this topic. We've already been asking people, as our regular viewers know, to flood the Regional Banking Task Force, which is a government task force to investigate the shutdown of regional banks, you know, up to the limits of the CBDs of every city, basically. Um, with calls for a postal bank, we need to, to flood them by the 18th of December. We've got uh, one of the things I want people to think about in this regard. You actually wrote an article for our Australian Alert Service magazine uh, a week or so ago about a parallel uh, proposal discussion in the United States where Joe Biden's appo appointee, who's since withdrawn, to the uh, bank regulator over to be the bank regulator over there. She also has talked about a central bank digital currency, etc. And the point you made. Um, uh, in your article is she actually had some sound reasons for saying problems need to be addressed. And you said, instead of going down this digital path, it would be much more easily and more straightforwardly addressed with proper financial reform, including a national bank, mm. right? And same thing for Australia. Let's make sure the basics work before we start carrying on with all this pie in the sky Jetson stuff, right? Mm. And the basics are have a, have a sound banking system and we need to break the monopoly of the big four banks. We need to guarantee financial services in every community. We need to guarantee financial security for those financial services, i.e. the deposits people put, put in the banks, right? Guarantee the banking services so people don't get debanked, right? The, the, and, and only a government institute can't 
institution can't discriminate. And the solution, therefore, is a government bank. Mm. Um, so we've been saying this. Uh, this week, uh, on Wednesday, actually, the Queensland Country Life put out this great article, one mm. in four regional bank branches have shut since 2017. This is about the Regional Banking Task Force, and they're pointing that out. Um, they also point out how well, how much it's stacked. The task force is going to be stacked by the, by the Banking Association and the Big Four Banks. There's someone from local government there and there's someone from Australia Post there. Um, but uh, Anna Bly from the Australian Banking Association, what's her, what does she say about uh, banking services? Why, they, why the banks can shuttle their branches in regional areas? Oh, people are using electronic banking. That, <laughs> I mean, if, that flies in the face of everything we've just been talking about. I won't rant and rave about it, but... Especially in regional Australia, electronic banking is not cannot be relied upon, mm. right? That's just rubbish. And so the people from regional Australia, including National Party Senator Perrin Davey, National Party Senator Bridget McKenzie, who actually know what regional communities need in this regard, said, no, they need bank branches. Um, so Bob, Robbie Catter, Bob Catter's son, mm. was quoted, and he just cut through all the, um, uh, all the noise mm. to say... Let's have a postal yeah. bank. I think it's worth reading what he said because it gives you an insight that this is not only us saying this, it's, uh, you know, our ideas are being reflected out there everywhere. He said, without waiting for an inquiry, why, why don't we just express our views publicly in regards to the direction we should move towards instead of waiting for a report that may never deliver anything? Just before you go on, and that is true. That's why we say we cannot let this regional task force be a talk fest. That's why we must flood it with submissions, and I'll say them more in a minute. Mm. Mr Catter uh, said the answer to regional banking issues and to questions pertaining to rural development more broadly was a government-owned or backed bank. To make initiating this process simpler, you could consider a model that has some of the necessary infrastructure already in place, he said. For example, Australia Post was considering a model of this nature, which would be the perfect vertical alignment for their operations. He, said he was referring to Christine Holgate when he said her that. Her proposal, yeah. He said bank lenders could operate out of Australia Post offices similar to how it's done in New Zealand through the NZ Post and its Kiwi Bank. The beauty of this solution is that it is more likely to make money for the taxpayer than burden them. Ultimately, this model could be highly beneficial to the government's bottom line. Indeed. Now, and, Elisa, I didn't tell you this yet, but we got a, the Citizens Party got an email this morning based on our press release that you yes, referred uh, to yeah. earlier um, about let's make the postal bank an election issue. And the press release came from Switzerland. And it's mm. an Australian living in Switzerland who saw the press release reference the fact that Switzerland was one of the countries that Christine Holgate visited to see how they had combined postal and banking services successfully. And he said, I want to tell you as an Australian living here, that's right. And he, he actually talked about how great it is. But he also talked about how the bankers' agents now want it privatised, mm. right? And Switzerland has citizens-initiated referenda, which means if, if the bankers' agents try and do that, the Swiss people will be able to get up a referendum and vote on it, and they'll never let that happen, mm. right? They, they do not want that privatised at all. And just on this issue of um, how Robbie Catter said, you know, you can't wait for an inquiry to come along and decree it because... Um, there's actually been a lot, and we've covered this yeah. in the Australian Alert Service, there's been a lot of inquiries into regional banking issues been going on for decades. But Dale Webster, uh, who's an independent journalist who put together some brilliant material on her website, the, the Regional, she did an interview on ABC Regional Radio on Tuesday. She also did a background piece um, 
of what everyone should know when they're making yeah. a submission to the committee where she went into this inquiry, I should say, which she went through a lot of the background as well of these various inquiries that have come and gone and the banks have made all the promises in the world. Oh, yes, we'll go along with that recommendation, etc., etc., and none of them ever come to fruition. Melissa Harrison from uh, the, our organisation wrote in the Australian Alert Service a three-part series as well on this, and that's going to comprise our submission. Um, but uh, Dale has done more dedicated work in this area than anybody, and uh, so you're right, she knows all the inquiries. The clip we're about to play, I just want, just want to hear a little bit of her interview with um, ABC Regional Radio on Tuesday. Um, what they're talking about is the, 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 the inquiry that matters the most, and it was the Campbell Report in 1982, because this is the inquiry that set the scene, and that report foreshadowed because it demanded privatisation of all public banks and took including the Commonwealth Bank. And when it did that, it said, when that happens, banks will start shutting their branches. Mm -hmm. that, said, that report said that as if it was a good thing, right? So, um, and that has led Dale to conclude, like us, that there is benefit in a public bank. So just listen to this. Can we, people listening this morning, can we just step it through, uh, uh, unpack a little of what you just had to say, Dale, in terms of people listening this morning possibly won't really need a very long memory to remember that there were, it wasn't that long ago, I guess, uh, that uh, there were banks that were owned by state governments, by governments, uh, and were heavily regulated by them. But it was that first report, that Campbell report, that sort of undid all of that and set us down this path. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the... I think the sale of the government banks is probably, you know, if there was one thing that that's happened that has led us to this situation, I think it's that. Um, because Campbell and the, the the political philosophy of the day was um, that government banks weren't, you know, they weren't competitive with the private sector bank and I think banks, and I think I think the private sector banks did some pretty heavy lobbying at the time to get it all onto a level playing field. So um, I don't want to lay all the blame on coalition governments because it was actually the, the Hawke-era Labor governments, Hawke-heading Labor governments, that implemented all of these um, changes. So everyone's to blame. Does your trawling through the history of this um, sorry tale uh, in, in regional Australia give you any cause for optimism, Dale? Um, no. Right. Um, I, look, there's some good initiatives floating around. Um, there's talk of a postal bank. Um, I don't know a lot about it, but if that was, um, if that was a government-owned initiative, I think that would be something that, um, people could pin their hopes on. And the reason the public bank will be the solution to regional bank closures, Elisa, is because it'll force the private banks to compete. Mm. That's why the Campbell Report said if we privatise the Commonwealth Bank and take the competition away from the private banks, they're going to stop worrying about competing on service. You have, if you have an excellent banking facility in every post office in Australia, right, the private banks will go, huh, we're going to start losing millions of customers to this public bank right. if we don't keep our branches open. Right? That's why, for the specific problem of regional branch closures, let's have a postal bank. Absolutely. Now, you also addressed this week a Shire Council in Queensland on this subject. Yep. And uh, 
I think modern technology is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was like being in the room. I'm in Melbourne. I was mm. addressing the Livingston Council. Um, uh, they gave me half an hour. It was, uh, I mean, um, uh, they, were, they, were, they paid a lot of attention. They had done a lot of homework. Uh, there's, a, there's a momentum building here now where, and, and local government is going to have to be a driver of this, right? So it's good there's a local government representative on the task force. We need to get all local government involved. So if you're, wherever you're watching from, contact your council and say, are you aware of this banking task force? Are you aware of a postal bank? You need to get behind the campaign to call for it. Bob Catter, Robbie Catter's dad, has been our collaborator on this. And he is got, he's ready to go with legislation, but he's, he's being blocked by the parliamentary rules. We need a lot of, we need a groundswell of support behind the policy so that when he goes to introduce it, all those parliamentarians know that, um, yeah, okay, we, we might have to uh, jump on board this one. Mm. So make your submission by the 18th. And on to our next topic, Australia could be a manufacturing powerhouse. And these are related issues because one of the key things becomes the financial framework in which our manufacturers exist. Um, so in the course of recent months, there's been a Senate inquiry into manufacturing and they've held hearings. Uh, they did receive an extension. So their report is due on the 17th December. So there's a lot of things happening at the end of next week um, in the countdown to the end of the year. But we wanted to have a look at, uh, there's there's been a, a number of hearings um, and there's met a lot of interesting testimonies in those hearings, but I wanted to focus on one in particular um, that came out in uh, the first series of hearings, and that is from the uh, testimony from the Advanced Manufacturing Growth Centre Managing Director, Dr Jens Gernerman. And this is a body that was established by the government to foster <clears throat> the manufacturing industry, um, which is why it's his comments are rather interesting in the way that he <clears throat> basically points out that the government is going about this, you know, all the wrong way. Um, now, he started off citing a Harvard University study, which we've cited many times in our own publications, which ranks Australia as the eighth richest country in the world, yet found that it was the 86th ranked country <clears throat> in terms of its complexity. You, you rest your voice. I want to talk about this for a second. This is the, the, we'll put up the, um, the graphic they have on their website, the Harvard Atlas of Economic um, uh, Complexity. Because economic complexity means what are you capable of making, right? And um, the, like some of the countries on this list, I think the eighth is Czechoslovakia, a landlocked country, doesn't have a lot of resources. It has no choice but to make stuff, mm. right? Australia suffers from this disease where we are drowning in resources and wealth and we, have, we are the laziest economy in the world. Not the laziest people, the laziest economy. And we weren't always this way. This is the, the way to understand how, how outrageous and unjustifiable this is, is don't just compare us to other countries, compare us to ourselves 50 years ago. Well, actually, right? we were number 55 on this list, um, Dr. Gernerman pointed out, in 1995. So we went from 55 to 86. Yes, just and, in those few years. And, and how did we do it? We just started digging stuff out of the hole, uh, holes in the ground and, and shipping dirt overseas. Mm -hmm. And actually, you'll see it. Have a look at the map there. Um, and if you, you can draw the, take the bar down to 1995, and you can see the colour of Australia there, which is, um, a certain, I think it's light blue. Uh, go to the other, go to the current time, right? And we are now down at the level of some of those African countries, right? Yeah. And that's not, 
not for it, it's not their fault they're in that position, but it's our fault we're in our position, right? And it's and it, what happens is you become completely dependent on your importer, mm. on, on the on the countries that are importing your goods. Um, and if they if supply chains break down, if you have a global pandemic, all sorts of stuff, right? Yeah. You can shoot yourself in the foot. And he Dr. Gurneman shows there's a direct link between the complexity of your economy and future income. So you're just cutting yeah. yourself off at the feet if you don't take that into consideration. But he identified four key elements uh, if we want to get a really um, successful, thriving manufacturing industry in this country. The government, public service, research and the industry itself. And there's a few things to point out in each of these uh, subsections. And I'll show a clip from him in a moment talking himself. But when it comes to government, he just, he blasted the way they operate. He said, look, they need a 20-year plan and they need to stick to it. Stop coming up with half-baked things and changing them after each election. And the other thing he pointed to is the government rely on grants. So they give these grants, but there's no follow-up. It's just doling out a bit of money here and there. There's nothing to pursue to make sure that goes somewhere um, and to make it happen. The public service is a key thing because, of course, our public service has literally fallen apart. Um, our, it's been stripped of capabilities because of outsourcing, and we've written much about this, as have other um, people you know, in independent Australian media. Uh, there's actually a, another Senate inquiry um, that has been going on and has put out their final report and it's called for a formal cap on outsourcing of public sector roles. Uh, the chair of this committee, the Finance and Public Administration References Committee, Senator Tim Ayres, and he's the ex-state secretary of the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, uh, pointed out that billions was spent, is spent each year on private consultants rather than using the public service. Yep. Much of it is to overseas companies. Um, and he described the consulting industry uh, as having opaque contracts, no accountability, hiding their profits offshore, and as being rent seekers and ticket clippers. And let me just say, the four of those, the biggest consulting firms in the world, are the big four auditing firms, KPMG, Ernst & Young, PricewaterhouseCoopers, etc. No one audits them. No. They, are, they earn billions all, all over the world from governments Park it, they, they control the tax system because they're the world's auditors. They park it in offshore centres. They are the auditors for every other company. No one audits them, right? Senator Peter Wishwilson of the Greens has, has asked this in Parliament. Who audits the auditors, right? Mm. Yet, and they combine it with, with consulting and they make squillions that way as well. Mm -hmm. um, research is the next one he mentioned. Now, I wanted to uh, point out the fact that we've had collaboration with... Um, various people who have pointed out to us that Australia has one of the highest rates of international collaboration on research and in particular research papers we have, uh, in point many countries. We've got 0.4% of the world's population but we produce 4% of the world's academic research and we do that because we leverage our collaboration with other countries. Our government does not fund research properly here, mm -hmm. right? So what our universities do and the smart academics in them, and this is across the board, is they, they collaborate with the best funded research around the world, which happens to be, uh, at the top of that list nowadays, happens to be China, yeah, Lisa. Yeah, we'll put the, some graphs up what, showing well, that. Well, what you can see in the, uh, in the graph there, especially the one with the blue line overtaking the green line, the green line is the United States, and everyone expects the United States, you know, high standards of research. 
But China is so committed to being um, technological breakthroughs, right? It is researching like crazy. And it's because Australia is, China is our number one collaborator in research that our universities have um, been able to do so well in the research area. That's all been demonised at the moment, of yeah. course. Yeah, and I just wanted to mention uh, the Morrison government, and again, we wrote about this in the Australian Alert Service, which you can find out how to subscribe to to get all this good information. Uh, <laughs> I'm not the editor. <laughs> um, but the Morrison government put out this blueprint for critical technologies, which is supposed to make Australia a world leader in technological revolution. But the blueprint is entirely framed in this whole national security context about protecting us from our competitors. Yeah. Doesn't name China, but you know, um, and talks about how critical technologies are advancing the threat against quote unquote liberal democratic values. And yet most of it is not about um, so-called dual use technologies. I mean, it's a whole sector including research and development on 63 rapidly developing technologies. And the upshot, as quoted by the um, Sydney Morning Herald, is that such uh, collaboration could be blocked, or such research could be blocked from being shared with Chinese universities and firms as the federal government looks to stop Beijing from gaining dominance across a range of emerging sectors. So we're actually sabotaging the kind of collaboration and research yeah. that would assist, as uh, Dr. Gurneman points out, the advancement of our manufacturing. And the final thing he mentioned was industry. And in regard to the industry itself engaging in um, advancing our manufacturing sector, look, he, he said it's not about picking winners, etc. He said, look, we're already winners. We're actually very, very good at what we do. Uh, but the sector is just too small. And the other thing he pointed to is that we re need real investment, um, not just grants again. Uh, and he talked about, which I thought was interesting, that manufacturing is a mindset. It's not actually some separate sector that you can think yeah. of as separate to the economy. It's a mindset and an economy will only function, function if it's the bedrock of the economy. So with that said, I want to roll the clip uh, of a few, just a few of the remarks he had to say at the outset of his testimony. Thank you. Um, what do Australian governments need to change in order to become a manufacturing powerhouse? Government is one of four pillars for manufacturing. The other pillars are research, the public service and industry. First of all, I do believe that industry needs to lead the charge. Government needs to support. The first thing government needs to do in support is to be consistent, have a plan and stick to it for 20 years. The plan doesn't need to be perfect, but needs to be good enough to be successful and stick to it, number one. Um, number two, um, the um, manufacturing capability in Australia needs two things, more complexity, need three things, more complexity, more scale, and more focus. Let me explain. Um, we have 47,000 manufacturers and 85% employ less than 20 people. We are subscale. Um, we need to help manufacturers, especially the most capable and best of them, to scale and grow and have more muscle. We are too small. We don't have the medium-sized 
um, a companies in Australia, which is the backbone for every successful economy. We have a few big ones. Some of them call themselves manufacturing and cannot even define manufacturing correctly. And then we have 47,000 and many of them way too small. We need to scale, help them scale. Number two um, uh, was uh, in regard to focus. A country of Australia, like many other little countries with a population of 25 million, does too many things at the same time. We need to focus. This is not called picking winners. This is about elaborating on what we are already good at. We are already winners. And the concept of Australia to having defined six, wait for it, national manufacturing priorities, not six priorities, not defense, not space, not food and agri priorities, but national manufacturing priorities is great. It says two things. Number one, it is a horizontal of manufacturing which is a prefix of these six verticals. This is focus and this is a manufacturing mindset. Manufacturing, by the way, is not a sector, it's a capability. And I would even say it's a mindset. So the focus on these six national manufacturing priority, they might not be perfect, but they are good enough not to do everything a little bit, but focus on areas where we are already good at or where we have chosen to be good at it. That is the second thing. And the third thing is to use um, government, government policies um, within the decision-making of government and the public service to working with industry to, um, to take these initiatives which are successful. Australia is obsessed with grants, throwing money at something and hope it sticks. Usually it doesn't. But the difference when an initiative industry-led and the grant is co-invested as we do at the Advanced Manufacturing Growth Center, as we co-invest with applicants, with the best applicants informed by our research and go milestone by milestone with industry practitioners and check whether they do what they say they will do in these projects, keeps them honest. That is the magic difference between just a grant, fire and forget, and checking homework and making sure that the co-investment for the advancement of factory manufacturing is happening. And last, I said there are four areas, government, uh, public sector, public, public service, industry and research. Australia has great research. Australia spends 60% of their research money in technology readiness level number two. Now, there are nine technology readiness levels. One is an idea, nine, the realization of it. If we continue spending all our firepower in the first three steps, a great idea will never come to the commercialization. It is followed by the technology readiness of four to eight, the so-called commercialization value of death. We are overfunding our early research. We are underutilizing our ability to see it through and have the manufacturing outcome at the very end. Now, a crucial part of um, the government's role in this uh, and, you know, broader is there needs to be a real vision for the future of what we want this country to look. This is what it means to have a 20 year plan, you, yeah. you know, and this is what China's very good at doing. They look into the future and say, this is where we want to be in 20 or 50 years. And you set your sights on that. And, you know, and a great example of this 
high-speed rail. I mean, Australia has zero kilometres of high-speed rail. Think about what that would do to manufacturing, mm. especially in this era where we have to make sure we've got what we need in terms of supply chains and produce locally. Um, so I'll put up an image here. This is uh, a, the new bullet train that is in, sitting in the station in the capital of Laos. And on the 3rd of December, uh, they inaugurated a new 414-kilometre high-speed railway. So here's a little old country in Southeast Asia with over 400 kilometres of high-speed rail, while we <laughs> have none. And this was a Belt and Road in initiative project. And, and Elisa, last year we did a section of our show, an episode of our show on the old... Uh, Sydney to Melbourne very fast train proposal from the 80s, which was scoped out by the finest mines in Australia at the time. It was the bean counters and the Keating government that, that eventually killed it. That could have gone around the coast from, not, not straight through, so it's going to go around the coast to help build up the, the, uh, the population density in those areas rather than just Sydney, right? And we, you know, um, the people who did that work, they went and looked around the world at different possibles, possibilities, different proposals. And it was it was these technical experts in Australia that first scoped out the idea of a, a um, Beijing to Shanghai fast train line. And that did evolve into an actual fast train line. It was the first link, link, um, link mm. that, ba that China built. And that was by 2008. And since then, they've got 36,000 kilometres of it. Mm. They're building it in other countries like Laos, and we still haven't got one, right? So, look, we've got to get our act together. We need to back these ideas and make them work. And um, the, the, the talent is there to make it happen. Um, we've got another I, great example of that in the alert service this week. This is, this is a, a left-field idea that just shows you the brilliance that's in Australia. So there's a proposal in, for Albany in Western Australia for a spaceport. Um, there's a lot of demand for space launches. There's actually a space rush at the moment. And... Uh, April Walker is a mining and construction engineer. She just happens to be to love space. She's a space enthusiast. And she was, you know, when she's not doing her work in mining and construction, she was thinking about this and she saw that how much effort goes into launches of rockets for satellites, etc. And what happens is the, the company that um, develops the rocket technology or the satellite technology, um, that, that's the specialised technology but then they have to put a lot of resources into actually having a launch site for it. And she said, well, why can't someone take care of that permanently, provide permanent infrastructure? And she has, from nowhere, she's developed this idea with just a handful of collaborators. It's now being supported by the WA government. It's being supported by big engineering firms in Australia, uh, backed by one in the United States, backed by a Canadian satellite company. Um, and this, she, she hopes to get Australia back into space launches by 2024, and if she achieves that, it'll be the first time since the 1960s mm. that we've launched into space from Australia, and it all started with her brainwave, right, and finally convincing the, the, the authorities to this, is a, this should be um, supported. We need to support all those kind of initiatives, right? Let's just transform the country in a positive way, and that's how we'll get manufacturing back and all those th things yep. that we've lost. It'll change the face of our economic situation very fast, even just getting it going from, you know, point zero, moving on. So before we conclude, I just want to emphasise the, uh, the opening story, financial, uh, or sorry, the Regional Banking Task Force, right? It's, the submissions close on the 18th of December. Every single viewer, click on the link below, just send them an email. Don't make it sophisticated, or make it as sophisticated as you want. We want to flood this task force 
Yeah. It's stacked with bankers, um, and they're going to try and suppress it. We want those politicians to get so many emails saying, we want a postal bank, that when they produce their report, they have to acknowledge, well, that is an alternative that's there to address mm. this problem. So everybody, please mm. make a submission. You've got till the 18th of December. Stop watching. As soon as you finish watching this video, make it straight away. Yeah, don't put it off and think, I need to do more research or something. Yeah, no, yeah. just go do it. Just tell Let's them, start. we want a postal bank. Yeah. Um, so that's all we've got time for this week. Contact us for more information. Get a complimentary copy of the alert service to find out more. Join us as a member. And don't forget to hit the like button and share as widely as possible because that helps get the word out. So thanks, Robert. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.